Hi everybody, Jimmy DeYoung, and welcome to Prophecy Today. You know I need 90 minutes. If you can give me that, I will give you the world. My broadcast partners are scattered across the world. They're going to give us a report looking at current events that will help us to understand how close we are to the scenario that's laid out in God's Word for the end times. It's Bible prophecy, and that is what we focus on. The prophecy happening around the world and also those current events that are setting the stage for additional prophecy to be fulfilled. Great to have you along. We're going to bring to these broadcast microphones in just a few moments a man who has been in Israel for a number of years. We talk to him all the time, Winky Madad, and we're going to be talking about Holocaust Remembrance Day. Now, for the state of Israel, for the Jewish nation, that happens this next week. I want to talk with Winky about how the Holocaust played such a key role in the establishment of the Jewish state of Israel, how did the Jewish people commemorate that horrific event in history, and what about the survivors of the Holocaust? They're slowly passing into eternity. How will the Jewish people continue to remember and be able to say never again? You do not want to miss that conversation with Winky Madad upcoming in the second half hour. Love to have you stay tuned so you can hear all of our broadcast partners. Well, let's go to the first one, Ken Temmerman. He looks at current events that are political, geopolitical mostly, around the world. We take him into Europe, into the Middle East, into America, wherever something is happening that you need to know about, and Ken is available. He's capable of giving us insight into these events. Ken, let's begin with the Sri Lanka thing. That was a terrible, horrific attack on Resurrection Sunday. Uh, The report said that the death toll had risen up above 350, and then they revised that. They said that they were looking at body parts and not the whole body to determine. That's almost a, a terrible thing to have to say. I think it's been revised down to about 250 today. But it's just another example of the Islamic terrorists going after the Christian community. Would you not say that's the case? Oh, absolutely. And ISIS is positively glowing over this attack. They hit multiple targets almost simultaneously. This is a technique that they learned from the Iranians, by the way, and from al-Qaeda and then al-Qaeda to ISIS. But uh, the simultaneous truck bomb, the simultaneous suicide bombings, is something that the Iranians uh, taught to al-Qaeda in the 1990s. And we know that from the 9-11 Commission report and work that I have, I have done on the uh, Iran 9-11 case. So this is a very important uh, statement that ISIS is in business internationally. They may have lost their caliphate, the geographical caliphate in Syria and Iraq, but they still have the power and the capability of inspiring terrorists in far-flung places around the world. You know, how far is Sri Lanka uh, on the uh, eastern side of India? How, how far is that from, uh, you know, the Middle East, where they are? So uh, it shows that ISIS is still in business, and uh, they have a tremendous uh, ability to inspire terrorists around the world. Well, and seemingly celebrating in a river of unclean blood as they are looking forward to the future, put up posters of burning Pope Francis and the Buddha, 
I know, you know, these may not fit into what we consider the Christian community, Buddha especially, but when you stop to think about it, it's a religious figure that's not Muslim. So they're out there. They want to go after all non-Muslims, don't they? Uh, Absolutely, because we are all infidels. It's one thing that we share. Uh, Remember, the Taliban went after Buddhist temples in Afghanistan before 9-11. They tore down 2,000-year-old statues of the Buddha. So Christians are not the only ones that they target. But in this particular case, it's very, very clear. They hit several Christian churches and several luxury hotels where Westerners were known to be staying. Americans were killed. Uh, Brits were killed and other uh, Westerners, and that was their goal. Their goal was to slaughter as many people as they possibly could, to revel in, as you say, unclean blood, and to show that they still had the power to carry out this kind of attack despite losing their caliphate. Let's focus a moment on the Middle East. Lebanon's Minister of Defense has made an unbelievable statement. He said if there's another war against Lebanon, and I'm not sure there's been one against Lebanon in particular, but Hezbollah there in southern Lebanon. However, the Lebanese Minister of Defense says that they, his army, will strike Ben-Gurion Airport. Boy, that's a threat. And this is, it shows you how low the government of General Aoun, who is a Christian, has gone. Elias Saab, the defense minister, he is also a Maronite Christian. Uh, And for him to make this kind of threat against Israel just shows that the entire government of Lebanon is in thrall to Hezbollah. They are controlled by Hezbollah, which in turn is is controlled by the Islamic regime in Tehran, by the Islamic State of Iran. Uh, So this kind of statement really... You never would have seen this 10 years ago, 20 years ago, but it just shows how deeply in control Hezbollah and Iran are today in Lebanon, how deeply ensconced in the government. You know, a couple of weeks ago, Ken, we talked about a trio, including Russia, Iran, and Turkey. Uh, They were discussing the situation in Syria. Now they had a meeting this week discussing the post-war scenario for Syria. Talk to me about that. Well, that's right. And so these are ongoing discussions uh, between uh, Russia, Iran, and Turkey to figure out who is going to pay for what and who is going to get what in post-war Syria. And there's a lot of rebuilding, obviously, that has to be done. Uh, The Syrian government uh, would like to rebuild the country, and they're hoping that the Russians and the Iranians and the Turks will pay for parts of this. Uh, I think, uh, you know, we're going to have to wait and see just how much money they actually want to put on the table. What What is crystal clear is that you have this Russian-Iranian-Turkish alliance now working together on the ground in Syria, and I think that is the most significant part of this. We can leave the economics aside. They'll probably squabble over that. But politically, these three leaders, these three countries, which, as you point out, are right out of Bible prophecy, are coming together in alliance, working on the ground in Syria on the borders of Israel. Well, I came to realize this week there's an additional country that wants to get involved, and that's China. And they are trying to develop a relationship with Iran also as it relates to Syria. What do we know about that? Well, that's going to get interesting, because I'm willing to bet you that uh, the Russians are going to see the Chinese a bit as interlopers in the Mediterranean and in Syria in particular. So the um, Chinese ambassador to Damascus, a guy named Feng Bao, uh, 
has been meeting with various Syrian government ministers to see how China could invest, could help to rebuild the ports. Uh, China's also looking uh, to buy ports in the Mediterranean, including Piraeus in Greece. I mean, can you imagine that? The, probably the most ancient port in the Mediterranean world in Piraeus to be now owned and managed by the Chinese. We're not there yet, but they're in talks to do that. Uh, so, yeah, China is trying to uh, get into the Mediterranean in a big way, and they're not portraying themselves as rivals of the Russians. I'm willing to bet you that as they actually take their footing, actually get a footing in these ports, whether it's in Israel or Lebanon or in Greece, uh, the Russians are not going to be quite as happy as you might think. Ken, we better check in on Libya. We've talked about it in the past. European Union, they are hoping that the Trump plan of a support for Haftar, General Haftar, against the United Nations appointed government there in Tripoli, uh, that uh, Trump will pull back from that. I don't think he's going to, do you? I don't think he is either, and and this is yet another situation where President Trump defies the traditional thinking, the establishment thinking of the foreign ministries and the the international diplomats who want to support this U.N. government in Tripoli. And Trump says, no, they're they're full of Islamists. They're supported by Qatar. They're supported by terrorist states. Uh, Haftar is a, remember, he's a general from the Gaddafi regime who established himself in Benghazi after the fall of the U.S. consular uh, facility there, after the murder of Americans. Uh, And, by the way, it was a group of pro-Qaddafi loyalists who actually rescued our people at the end of the 13-hour battle that they had with al-Qaeda and the Iranian Quds Force in Benghazi in 2012. That's a little-known fact that came out of the Benghazi Special uh, uh, Committee, uh, chaired by uh, uh, Trey Gowdy on Capitol Hill. So Haftar comes out of that same group of pro-Qaddafi loyalists, uh, and while he has uh, welcomed some Islamist groups into his coalition, he's also battled the uh, uh, ISIS, he's battled al-Qaeda, and uh, excluded them. So uh, Trump sees him as a potential ally and uh, an ally to distance the uh, Islamist groups from power in Libya. Ken, we only have about 45 seconds, if you will. Quickly talk to me about Tayyip Erdogan. We keep a focus on him as well. Having some problems, some cracks deepening in his ruling party there in Turkey. Uh, That's right. Erdogan's got trouble in Istanbul, and Istanbul has always been the heart and soul of his AKP party, and it's all about the money. I mean, it's not just these elections, but it's about the money. Uh, There's a government minister, the finance minister, in fact, a guy named Al Bariak, whose family companies have always dominated, have always dominated contracts in in uh, uh, in Istanbul, and now it's the AKP candidate for mayor who is trying to kick him out, and that's one of the reasons they believe that the AKP lost that municipal election. You see, by listening to this conversation with Ken Timmerman, why he is key as a broadcast partner with us. We go across the world looking at geopolitical activities. He helps us to understand the details behind these events, and that helps us then to better understand how they are setting the stage for the prophetic scenario found in God's Word. Ken, thank you so very much, my good friend. Have a good weekend. We'll talk again next week. Thanks so much, Jimmy. Always my pleasure. God bless. 
We're going to take a break. A Middle East news update coming from David Dolan. That's up next right here on Prophecy Today. The book of Revelation is God's final word to man and the timeline of the last days revealed to the Christians. This symbolism-filled example of apocalyptic literature can be difficult to understand, especially when simply reading it from beginning to end. Dr. Jimmy DeYoung's latest book, Revelation, A Chronology, takes a walk through the prophetic book of Revelation in the order that the events will take place, chronologically, sharing insights into its true meaning and doing so in an easy-to-understand and practical way. If you have difficulty understanding the book of Revelation, get your copy of Revelation, A Chronology, and let Dr. Jimmy DeYoung aid you in your understanding of this profound end-times prophecy book that God has preserved in His Scriptures for for Christians in the last days. To order your copy of Jimmy D. Young's Revelation, a chronology, call us toll-free at 877-674-3298 or visit our website at prophecytoday.com. Prophecy Today is heard all across the USA on the Prophecy Today radio network, but also it is heard around the world through our website at prophecytoday.com. And Jay, there are many other features on our prophecytoday.com website, like daily news updated out of the Middle East as it pertains to what's happening prophetically. Special reports can be heard right on our website at prophecytoday.com. We have Prophecy Q&A available for you. Questions asked in the past can be answered on the website if you just check it out and go to that particular spot. Prophecy Quiz is available, and parts of our Prophecy Today program, if you should miss any part of it, will be heard the next week right here at prophecytoday.com. And don't forget, you can even email your questions to us for our live radio broadcast. Just go to our website at prophecytoday.com. You'll be amazed, you'll be surprised at what you'll find on our website. Be sure to visit us at prophecytoday.com on the World Wide Web. Welcome back to Prophecy Today. I'm Jimmy DeYoung, right here at Broadcast Central. We're going to be here for a couple of days, then we'll take off for northern Florida, over into Louisiana, and then across the country. We'll keep you posted where we're going to be. You can find out what our schedule is. That's available at my website, prophecytoday.com. Well, as promised, David Dolan comes to this broadcast table. We're going to take David and ask him to allow us to understand the Middle East a little bit better. He's been a journalist there for over 35 years. He knows the land. He knows the people. He knows the region. And that's why we bring him to this broadcast table with all the information we want to glean about what's happening there. David, let me ask you about Nasrallah, Chief Nasrallah of Hezbollah, located there in southern Lebanon, made an interesting claim this week, and I want to see what your thoughts are. I don't believe it, but tell me what you think about the claim. He said that the Israelis are unprepared to go for war against the Hezbollah if they should attack from the north. Now, I can't believe the IDF is not ready. What would you say to Cheek Nasrallah? Well, he's going to find out if they're ready or not, Jimmy, <laughs> and I think, of course, they're ready. They know that they are probably going to not face Hezbollah alone when the next conflict, and it's just a question of when, not if, with Hezbollah and Israel happens. 
They know that there'll be other parties, other elements, Hamas in the south and probably Iran itself and probably Syria and maybe Russia and others, as we've discussed. You know, if Israel's facing everyone all at once, uh, it will be a bit of a problem. There's no question about it. That's uh, forces that are, you know, pretty prepared themselves for battle and uh, getting more so all the time. But certainly the Israelis have been preparing in the North, Jimmy. There's been ma- major military exercises going on to the uh, along the northern border for the past few years. Those have been stepped up in recent months. We've had major naval exercises off the coast between the United States and Israel and French and other forces. In fact, two U.S. aircraft carriers are right off the Syrian coast now, the Abraham Lincoln and the John Stennis. The U.S. ambassador to Russia was on board the Lincoln, and he made a comment that this is 200,000 tons of diplomacy we've got out here, and nothing else needs to be said, he added. So um, a warning to Russia, a warning to Hezbollah, a warning to Iran, that the U.S. is very closely integrated. We had Israeli soldiers this week up in Germany, Jimmy, uh, that were training with the U.S. and other forces there. That's a new addition. So I would uh, not uh, bet that the Israelis are not ready. They are, and uh, you know, but they know that it could be a very, very nasty war. We had the Lebanese defense minister this week, Elias Saab, say that uh, Ben Gurion Airport would be struck by Lebanon if uh, the Beirut airport is struck, and Netanyahu, the Prime Minister of Israel, has said that these precision-guided missile factories that are all around Beirut, but a couple of them right near the airport, will be uh, struck at some point if they don't stop upgrading these missiles, which they continue to do. So a war is coming at some point, Jimmy, but I wouldn't uh, guess that Israel is unprepared. They know it. They've been preparing for some years now, and as best they can, they will meet the challenges. Very interesting verse over in Psalm 83 and verse 7, where it mentions uh, that Lebanon will be a part of that alignment of nations that will come against the Jewish state of Israel right there in the beginning, the first six months of the tribulation period. But that was quite a, a very potent statement made by the defense minister of Lebanon to strike Ben-Gurion Airport in the next war. Now, that war could break out, but they're saying, hey, we're coming full force if there is a war. Well, and again, uh, it's always been assumed that Ben-Gurion Airport would be one of the major targets in the next major missile war that takes place. And you know that with the building of the new airport, uh, what's that been now, 15, 20 years ago, uh, massive... um, uh, Air raid shelter was built underneath it that can house, I believe, several thousand people. There's a small hospital, Jimmy, underneath the airport uh, in case it is struck and people need to be taken care of right there. They're as ready as they can be. But, yes, it's always been assumed that Hezbollah would hit the airport, if not the Lebanese government itself. And now, as we've been uh, talking about for several years now, the Lebanese government has virtually become Hezbollah. Hezbollah has virtually taken over the entire government with the addition of the Christian president who's allied with Hezbollah. So it's really ready in a way. And as you say, the prophet said that this would take place. We can see all the elements gathering steam. But the U.S. military presence, Jimmy, is being increased substantially over the past couple months throughout the region. This is being done quietly. Uh, Nasrallah also said, as did the Iranian foreign minister Zarif, that it was Israel that was trying to goad Iran and uh, Hezbollah and other enemies into acting against it, that Israel was trying to start a war 
Well, the opposite is the case. The Israelis have just concluded that Iran is determined to have a war. And so it's going to come. So it could be that Israel fires the first shot. That could happen. But more likely, it'll be the other way around. But uh, it does seem like all the forces are building for a showdown probably this year. This is the season of a Passover there in Israel and, in fact, across the world. But in Israel, in Jerusalem, the Sanhedrin, those 70 wise Jewish scholars, reenacted the Passover sacrifice. They weren't on the Temple Mount, which is what the Bible calls for, but instead a location overlooking the Temple Mount. They did that at the time of Passover. But this last week, tens of thousands gathered at the Western Wall for the priestly blessings. Now, this is a part of the plan that the Jewish people have, and they prepare for the temple to be there, so all these things will be authentic. There are events happening that are simply preparation for that, aren't they? Yes, Jimmy, and remarkably so, because when I moved to Israel in 1980, the country was only 33 years old. And there was no existing Sanhedrin then. And there was talk of a new temple. You heard it every so often. You'd see it debated sometimes on television. But very rarely any action. And the priestly blessings were taking place, of course, then, but much, much smaller. Not so much attention on all this. And then, as you have documented yourself and many others, too, over the past 30 years, uh, the moves to prepare for a new temple have been gaining a force every year, and the excitement about it seems to be growing. But the realization that this will probably only come about after a massive war is pretty widespread in Israel. People understand that. They know that the Muslims are never going to willingly give up any part of the Temple Mount. We saw them reoccupy the uh, Golden Gate (laughs) a couple months ago and the fighting that took place over that. So uh, it, it will have to be a major change on the ground before that can happen. But certainly Orthodox Jews in particular, and even many secular Jews would like to see a temple rebuilt, but Orthodox Jews in particular do and are very longing for it and very excited at the prospect of it happening. The anticipation for the Trump peace plan to be released, by the way, Kushner, son-in-law of the president, made the statement that it'll take place in June after Ramadan, the Islamic holy days. But uh, there are additional leaks coming out, and they're saying that the Trump peace plan will be almost everything that Israel wants. That's an interesting statement. We don't know what it's going to be, but Israelis will like it, according to these leaks. Well, and again, it seems to be that the Gaza Strip will be designated as the Palestinian state, but not Judea and Samaria, and that would please the Israelis no end. Not that they want to see any Palestinian state. I mean, they're not opposed to it in theory, but they know that Gaza Strip, Palestinian state, will probably still be a hostile state against them, will probably still launch attacks against them and that sort of thing. But according to the peace plan, that wouldn't be the case. Egypt would have a bigger role They would be disarmed, and again, Israel would keep uh, Judea and Samaria, and there would be no Palestinian capital in Jerusalem. Well, that is totally, as we talked about last week, uh, off the page for the Palestinians. They won't consider that even remotely, Jimmy. So uh, it, it seems like we're going to have the revelation of a peace plan that the Israelis will welcome and applaud. The Palestinians will completely reject and that nothing else will happen uh, after that. It will just sit there on the table. That looks like the, the most likely prospect at this point. 
Well, you've often said you don't think there's going to be a peace plan, at least in the near future. You still believe that way? I do, Jimmy. The The Palestinians are just not ready for it. They have to deal with Hamas. They have this radical movement that's allied with all these terror groups around the world that are slaughtering people right, left, and center. It's a nest of, well, I don't want to say what I just thought, but it has <laughs> to be dealt with, Jimmy. There yeah. can be no peace as long as there's that group and that strong fundamentalist Muslim force amongst the Palestinians, there can be no peace because they simply reject the Jews having any state, any authority over Muslims, and that, of course, comes from the Quran. And no peace in the Middle East until the Antichrist shows up with a pseudo-feast, Daniel chapter 9 and verse 27, and then the ultimate peace when the Messiah, Jesus Christ, comes back. David, thank you for your reports. They're so essential for our understanding of that region and what's happening as it relates to Bible prophecy. Appreciate it. We'll talk again next week. I'm blessed to do it, Jimmy. God bless. We're going to take a break. When we come back, Winky Madad standing by at the broadcast table. We're going to talk about Holocaust Remembrance Day. It's upcoming this next week. That's all ahead right here on Prophecy Today. Every believer needs to understand Bible prophecy. Whether you're a novice or a student, we are here to help you. Just visit prophecytoday.com and click on the link for the Prophecy Bookstore. There you will find a large selection of CD sets, DVDs, and books for the Bible prophecy student written by Dr. Jimmy DeYoung and other prominent scholars. While you're there, be sure to check out Dr. DeYoung's latest series called Presidents, Politics, and Prophecy. This series examines how God has used human leaders in general and specifically the last seven U.S. presidents to set the stage for Bible prophecy to be fulfilled. This was shot on location in Washington, D.C. and is available on DVD or as a 10-hour audio series on CD. Be sure to check back often for special deals. You can visit prophecytoday.com and click on Bookstore or you can go directly to prophecybookstore.com. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to Prophecy Today. Jimmy DeYoung here at Broadcast Central in Chattanooga, Tennessee. We now move into our second half hour. We're going to Israel now. We're going up to Shiloh, center part of the state in the area of Judea and Samaria, to talk with Winky Madad. Winky Madad is a broadcast partner that knows the media there in the state of Israel, knows the political arena, etc., but he's a very historical-minded person. He knows how history has unfolded. In fact, we've got a brand-new video coming out where we ask Winky Madad on the video itself to relate to us the history of the state of Israel coming into existence. Winky, I want to talk about Holocaust Remembrance Day, which will be on May the 2nd. Before I do that, let me ask, and then we'll get into the Remembrance Day and why it takes place, how you do it, everything else. Is the Holocaust a major foundation for the Jewish state? In other words, a safe haven for the Jewish people after the Holocaust there across Europe. Well, Jimmy, let's put things, as you say, in historical order. There is no doubt that after World War II, a major element that played on the minds of the Western world that overcame Nazism, Germany, and Italy 
during World War II was the fact that after the war ended, they found out that so many millions of Jews had gone to the ovens and the crematoria and the gas chambers, and that they were left with uh, perhaps 300,000 displaced persons who had nowhere to go, although some people said, well, send them back to Poland or send them back to Austria or to Germany. And the only place they really could go should have been Palestine. It should have been obvious to Palestine, which was then a mandate, supposedly a Jewish national home to be. And the Zionist movement, of course, uh, as, as odd as it may sound, benefited from that reality. But, of course, the Zionist movement had wished and had worked for almost 50 to 60 years in a modern political sense to gain a state before World War II. In other words, if the British had not given us that white paper in 1939, which limited purchase of land and restricted immigration severely, we could have saved millions. There would have been a state. And so that realization, I think, that double realization of their failing before World War II and the reality they faced after the Holocaust was, of course, undoubtedly a foundational element in the establishment of the State of Israel. Wiki, I understand there's a United Nations-initiated Holocaust Remembrance Day. I think it took place in January. What is the difference between that Remembrance Day of the Holocaust and the one that takes place there in Israel? Well, the first difference, of course, is that Israel uh, set up its memorial of the Holocaust uh, almost 70 years ago because of our tremendous loss of Jews from 18 different countries, numbering over 6 million people. That was a deep scar on our national character. The second Holocaust Day, which is set up, as you said, in uh, January, is the United Nations' way of giving some sort of international recognition to the Holocaust, but they include, of course, all the victims of Nazism, which included Poles, minorities of other countries, people of gender, people of religion, people of the, the, the Romas, or what we call the Gypsies, political uh, activists who were anti-Nazis. All this comes under that heading of January because that's when uh, the Russians, if I'm not mistaken, liberated Auschwitz concentration camp, the main, most horrible place on earth at that time, uh, between 42 and 1945. And so the United Nations uh, sought another way sort of to globalize or to generalize the Holocaust and include everybody, uh, and certainly they had a right to do so, who was a victim of Nazism. So therefore, the Israelis wanted to focus on the Holocaust as it relates to the death of six million Jews. That's why you have your own remembrance day there in the state of Israel. Is that correct? That's correct, but I must add that the date chosen according to the Hebrew calendar is as close as possible that we can get without being in the holiday itself of the Warsaw Ghetto Revolt that broke out during the holiday of Passover. And so we chose here in Israel to connect both the uh, horrific sorrow at the loss of so many people, 
together with a tremendous display of heroism that was that Warsaw Ghetto Revolt. Unbelievable if you can think of the conditions in the Warsaw Ghetto at that time. In April 1943, that they held off the German army, the Wehrmacht units, for something like over two weeks before they completely forced the ghetto defenders and those who revolted to yield or to be killed, every single one of them. So then how will the Israeli public stop and remember those who were killed in the Holocaust? What actually does take place that day with the Israelis? Well, Jimmy, for those who haven't been here, it's a time when you really realize why there should be a Jewish state. Everything shuts down, basically. Unlike, of course, Yom Kippur, there is uh, traffic and there is events that take place. There's public transportation. But in terms of focus, you have the Yad Vashem ceremony in the evening, which begins, if I'm not mistaken, again, at 8 o'clock in the evening, with a siren going off across the country when people stand still. There's another one in the morning at 11 a.m., and there are ceremonies and television and radio retell stories both of losses and of the uh, heroic attempts to stay alive, rescue attempts, uh, and other stories that are so much fill up the life of Jewry during that period. They're staying alive, people who were given over to church institutions, uh, children who were hidden by neighbors, or, or uh, other stories, so that this memory remains alive. That's a wonderful way for people to be able to stop to remember their loved ones, their relatives who were slaughtered by the Nazi regime there in the Holocaust during the time of World War Two. Talk to me about and I know that every time I was there at Yad Vashem for that special ceremony, they would always have one of the Holocaust survivors there. I would imagine after 70 years, there are not a whole lot of survivors left. But you mentioned Yad Vashem, and that's the Holocaust Museum there in Jerusalem. Is that a major component to continue to remember the Holocaust and to say never again? Yes, it is, Jimmy. It is actually one, probably one of the official sites for uh, visits of presidents, kings, and prime ministers, uh, and other politicians and diplomats who come from abroad. It is a training educational center for other countries that are involved and interested in learning not only about the specific Holocaust of the Jews, but other mass genocides that unfortunately other people have suffered uh, since that uh, period of time. And so that um, besides memorial, besides creating educational tools and sensitizing people, uh, Yad Vashem is also a place where people come to look to see perhaps the, uh, what happened to their relatives. There are still people who do not know what happened to their relatives during that period of time, or they contribute items from storerooms, uh, albums of photographs, personal effects, so that the museum reflects as genuinely as possible the life that was and the life that was lost. 
Winky, talk to us about that name Yad Vashem. It's in Hebrew, translated to English, and tell us the significance of that name. Well, it, it's a, a verse, if I'm not mistaken, from Isaiah, in which God says there'll be Yad in Hebrew is a hand, literally. Shame in Hebrew is a name, literally. But when you put them together, it's idiomatic, and it becomes basically a memorial that the person's physicality and what he achieved in life as a person becomes a memorial, and God says, there will be a memorial, I will make a memorial. And so the people at that time chose that phrase to be the name of the museum. It's out uh, just off of Mount Herzl on Jerusalem's uh, outskirts. And has grown over the years with additional buildings, additional exhibits, uh, pictures, photographs, films, videos, and other elements where people come and learn. And of course, uh, a mass compendium of names. If I'm not mistaken, that close to five million names on file where people have said, "I have lost so and so and so and so," and other elements of an educational nature. A place to remember. And also make the pronouncement, never again will this happen to the Jewish people. Winky, thank you for sharing this with our audience. I wanted them to understand Holocaust Remembrance Day in there in Israel and the significance of it. We'll be praying for you and Chag Sameach as you conclude the Passover holiday. Thank you, Jimmy. Pleasure to be on as always. Thank you very much to you and your listeners. Very important conversation and informative as well, Winky Madad. Well, we're going to look at the European Union now. We do that on a weekly basis. I believe it's key that we understand this very important area of the world, a region that will ultimately fulfill Bible prophecy as we see the structure being set up for the revived Roman Empire. A man who travels and teaches on that subject and has been doing that for a number of years since he lived right there in Brussels, Belgium for over 30 years, is John Rood, and he's our broadcast partner. John, let me get right underway with you, if you will. The European Parliament elections are upcoming, but Brexit is becoming more and more of a headache. Absolutely. We have a situation now where we've had extensions, and then now if we don't have a Brexit deal approved by the United Kingdom Parliament by May 22nd, then they have to go into the European parliamentary elections. So they're a full member state. They have rights. They are represented at, at the heart of the EU. But politically, it's absurd to go ahead with the elections. Now, for the first time, some of these new scenarios are beginning to produce. Are we going to have extensions that upon extensions? Or is it even possible the EU would have to get ready to reintegrate the United Kingdom? And if that's the case, well, then all these forces that work to tear it apart will just grow. John, I don't remember the man's name. He was a political pundit that was writing there in Europe. He had a headline on an article. I sent it along to you for you to look at, peruse, and give us some insight on. The headline was, Getting Ready for the End of the European Union as We Know It. Now, you and I have talked a bit about that, but uh, that seems to be on the horizon, doesn't it? 
And it's linked, Jimmy, to what you mentioned with the, especially the parliamentary elections now. And, and indeed, we have used this phrase a few times that the EU is not going to be any longer as we've known it up to this date. These were statements by, uh, he's a Bulgarian political scientist, Ivan Krastev, and a, and a good thinker uh, analyzing some of these things. So the EU that we've known for the last 20 or 30 years is just not going to be there anymore. So, of course, we monitor these types of shiftings, and especially the type of EU that would be open for a dictator. We have a problem of democratic deficit as it is. So the shiftings bring uh, fissures and divisions. Uh, He sees that Eastern Europe is returning to their tradition rather than trying to be like the West. So again, it's just more and more of the cracks and fissures that we see indicative of iron and clay. Well, and then that would be helping us to recognize how the European Union or whatever may be the political structure there in Europe is really setting the stage for Bible prophecy to be fulfilled, and this makes it even more real, doesn't it? Exactly, because what will happen? The new systems will come out, and the EU has a tendency to test it to see what type of reaction they'll get. But the end of the EU as we know it, absolutely. We've said this is an existential crisis. We have so many forces that are coming against the EU right now. They probably wish that the U.K. would just leave and leave them alone. But now the crisis of the elections and the Eurosceptic parties that will have a great say in representation, now the United Kingdom is joining that as well. I believe it's 29 or 30 percent of the U.K. vote for the parliamentary elections would be the Brexit party. So this would be a headache for the hierarchy in Brussels. But along the lines, politically, it's setting the stage for the prophetic to be fulfilled. Well, let me take the focus off of the European Union as such and look a bit as it compares itself to what is going on in the Middle East as well. European Union officials are hoping that Donald Trump will uh, pull his support for Haftar, who is the general there in Libya. He's attacking the United Nations-appointed government there in Tripoli, and there's a big conflict. It's getting more intense every single day. European Union does not like Donald Trump's direction with Libya. The European Union as a whole, I think if they just let's say, blindly learned of a United States position, you would just assume they would come up with the opposite. But here, we, we note that there are situations where some of our closer friends in Europe also have, you know, in terms of annexation, Golan Heights, etc., they've jumped on board with the EU party stand against the United States. Libya, we have a new situation that's arisen in terms of the news, Jimmy, I believe it's definitely about oil, and we have the, the fact of trying to secure Libya's oil resources. The United States has recognized Field Marshal Haftar, and the EU has come out in direct opposition, even disbelief to those remarks. But it's a much bigger picture. Uh, with the oil, we have the United Arab Emirates involved in Saudi Arabia, 
And so now we see another polarization uh, occurring between the European Union and the United States, but it's now in North Africa. You know, John, I believe that three-letter word which you mentioned is exactly on target, O-I-L. I remember Dr. John Walford wrote a book not too long ago before he went into the heavenlies, Oil and the Middle East Crisis. So this was a part of his scenario and his writing and his study of Bible prophecy that it's really setting the stage now to unfold as Bible prophecy calls for. What about this one last thought with you? I read another article. I want to see what your thoughts are. The European Union nurturing instability and terrorism in the Middle East. Do you think that's the case? And it probably does fit that prophetic scenario. The European Union traditionally has been very, very pro-Palestinian authority. And as I mentioned a long time ago, but speaking with one of the European Parliament members, I said, why is the EU that at that time was to have no direct foreign policy, why are they consistently always pro-Palestinian authority and opposing Israel? He said that was very, very interested. He was going to bring that up in a session. So we have now the Palestinian Authority working to annex particular areas in in uh, Judea, Samaria. And so surely the EU has pushed this plan for a two-state solution, as it's called. But there's terrorist groups involved. The European Union has a great fund that they use for international development, but they need to be very careful that these can't be linked to uh, terrorist situations or objectives. And it appears to be the case here, uh, what's happening now in Israel. So the European Union is keeping their traditional stand, and it's one way, I've given a lot of thought about this, I think it's one way that they can just oppose the United States indirectly. Yeah, United States not mentioned in Bible prophecy, European Union, or at least that region is. And as I have a conversation on a weekly basis with John, you can understand better how that scenario is coming better into focus. Great report, John. Thank you so very much. We'll talk again next week. Thank you. Now we're going to Washington, D.C. Colonel Bob McGinnis, longtime broadcast partner and friend with us right here on Prophecy Today. His day job is at the Pentagon, but he has a lot of other things he's involved in. He does a lot of radio and television interviews, especially on Fox News. He's writing a number of books in the process of doing it, has already written a quite a few books, but also he travels around the world for the United States military to talk about strategy with other military leaders in the world. Bob, thanks for coming along with us. And Bob, I know that you've written on the present-day Cold War that is going on between the United States and Russia and China. Talk to us about why this is key that we recognize this reality. Yeah, Jimmy, uh, last year, my book, Alliance of Evil, which talks about the new Cold War, and I outlined 16 very significant indicators of that, which really mimic what we saw during the Cold War that started in the late 1940s and ended in 1991. You know, the things that we're seeing with regard to China and Russia growing an alliance, a military alliance as well as an economic alliance are significant. We see espionage, we see trade problems, we see proxy wars in Venezuela and Syria 
and elsewhere in the world. The list just goes on. It's very compelling, and it confirms every day as we read the, the top headlines in our newspapers and on our websites that, you know, yes, indeed, we are in a, a very different kind of new Cold War that takes us into domains like cyber world and outer space, not like we've seen before, but certainly the antagonism and the hatred is growing between the two sides, and indeed there are two sides in the world once again. Well, let's step back and look at one of those headlines, for example, this week. Talks going on between Vladimir Putin of Russia and Kim Jong-un of North Korea. Now, I understand maybe some of the reasons behind Russia's effort to have this conversation, this meeting between these two world leaders. What's your insight on that? Why do you think that Putin wanted to have this relationship develop? Well, uh, Chairman Kim's father and grandfather were close to the Soviet Union, and in fact, they owe a great deal of their stability and, of course, their nuclear and biological and chemical munitions capabilities to the Soviet Union, not necessarily the Chinese. They were bolstered uh, economically through the years as well. And so there's an affinity between those nations. Uh, and of course, uh, now that you know, North Korea is in a talking stage uh, with the United States, and of course, China and Russia uh, are, want to make sure that North Korea doesn't do something that would jeopardize their strategic position. Putin met with Chairman Kim in Vladivostok and just confirmed that the relationship and I think made a number of guarantees. Putin, of course, has said that the young chairman wants a guarantee of stability and security. Basically, he wants the regime to survive, doesn't want the U.S. nor the South Koreans or even the Japanese to attack and then topple that government. So these are things that uh, the chairman brings to the table, and Putin supports that, uh, and I'm not surprised. Well, in addition to the fact their borders touch each other, and what you've just said about some of the reasoning behind the meeting, where they was Vladimir Putin really trying to be antagonistic against President Trump and fight that battle of the Cold War? Yeah, and that's true. You know, there, there is a, an economic factor that hasn't really been discussed widely, and that's the rare earth metal, I suppose, wealth that is under the ground in North Korea. And the Chinese are very much aware of this. Every cell phone in the United States, all our high-tech electronics and weaponry rely on a, a host of rare earth metals. And apparently there are trillions of dollars of rare earth metals found in North Korea. So, you know, I know that President Trump's aware of that, and that's probably part of the enticement to try to develop a relationship by which uh, we can extract some of that as well. But the Chinese and the Russians, I don't think, are going to allow that to happen. So they're going to remain very close to the young chairman and do what's necessary to keep us at bay. Well, let's focus just a moment on China. I know that there is a movement by China to try to get into the Syrian situation and to somewhat partner with Iran. Talk to us about that. Well, the Chinese, in fact, have been trying and to a certain degree successfully over the years. What really they want to do is they allow the Russians and the Iranians to do any of the fighting and the bolstering of the Bashar Assad regime. What the Chinese want to do is go in, much as they have elsewhere, uh, and bolster the infrastructure, rebuild the infrastructure. Of course, wherever they go, 
uh, in their Belt and Road strategy, which was initiated in 2013 by President Xi, is to make these uh, loans that they know full and well that these countries are going to be hard-pressed to pay back, but they do it in terms of uh, building ports and maybe a 5G uh, Internet system, uh, per- perhaps airfields, uh, perhaps new roads as they do in Africa and other places. And, of course, they use Chinese labor, which doesn't help the local economy. And then they hold hostage the governments that have taken the infrastructure loans uh, and force them to uh, basically bow to Chinese uh, interest in the region and in the country. We're beginning to see it all over Asia, certainly in Africa, even in uh, Western Europe, Belgium, Italy, and so forth. Uh, so the Chinese agenda, their strategy, uh, is, of course, to become the world-dominant economic and military power uh, by the 100th year anniversary, which takes place in 2049. And President Xi of China is not bashful about saying that. Yeah, absolutely not. No bashfulness at all in either one of these leaders, Putin or the leader of China. That was Colonel Bob McGinnis. He gives us his insight. You've got a book on the Cold War situation. Remind us of the title again. Alliance of Evil, Russia, China, and the United States in a New Cold War. Wow. It's it's a good read, I would say, even though I am the author. Well, I would say it's a good read. I've read some of it myself, Bob. Well, thank you so much for giving us this insight. Appreciate it. Uh, We'll talk again another time with another important issue. Thank you, Jimmy. We're going to take a break. When we come back, we go into the last half hour, the 90 minutes I've asked for. And David James is going to talk about the Sri Lanka slaughter of Christians on Resurrection Sunday. All ahead right here on Prophecy Today. Hi everybody, Jimmy DeYoung. Welcome back to the last half hour of our 90-minute broadcast. This is a program put together to help you understand current events happening around the world and how they are setting the stage for Bible prophecy to be fulfilled. My broadcast partners have been reporting to us in this first hour of this 90 minutes. All the reports they've had have given us information, helping us to recognize where we are in God's time. We have one report left. David James is going to talk to us about the horrific attack on the Christian community in Sri Lanka. We'll get to that in a moment. I want to remind you that at my website, you can find out when we are going to Israel. We take tours to Israel, the lands of the Bible. We go to Israel. We go to Jordan, to Petra. We visit the seven churches of Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey, and we go to Rome. All of these locations have prophetic significance. If you'd like to come and join us on one of our tours, go to my website, prophecytoday.com. Go to Joshua Travel. You'll need all that information to help you make a decision. The times, the dates, the cost, the itinerary, all available right there on my website, prophecytoday.com. We now bring to this microphone David James. We have a weekly conversation where we look at issues that the church has to deal with. The Christians in these churches must have a biblical understanding of these issues so they will then know how to walk their daily life with the Lord. We're so glad to have David James to be able to do that. 
and we catch up with David as he's getting ready to head out for his next ministry trip. This time he's going up into Canada. That's a foreign land, by the way. That's a different country. I love going into Canada. There's a a uniqueness. We're close enough in America to get there easily, and it's a very interesting time. David will be there at the Word of Life Bible Institute and having an opportunity to teach those young people up there. David, what will you be teaching this time? I will be teaching the pastoral epistles to the students up there. That's First and Second Timothy and Titus. It's a course that I've taught several times, but it's been a number of years since I taught it. And the last time I taught it was a number of years ago, actually up there at that Bible Institute. Yes, going into Canada in April is always a touch-and-go situation. As I'm reading the newspapers and, and watching what's happening with the weather, they're expecting some heavy snow this weekend while I'll be traveling. So I'm certainly not looking forward to that. We're just now getting some good weather here in uh, central Indiana, so it's likely to be a big change for me up there, but it's always worth it to be able to connect with those students up at the Bible Institute. Well, I know that's the case. I've been up to the Canadian Bible Institute myself often, and it's either snow or mud at this time of the year, so we'll be prayed for you either way. You know, at least a couple of times this year, David, we've dealt with the persecution of Christians and attacks against Christianity around the world. And we told our listeners that we would continue to return to this issue as the situation warranted. And so this week, the bombings in Sri Lanka have caught the world's attention, thus we need to have a conversation. You're exactly right, and I'm glad that you and I decided to bring focus to this issue around the world. As you said, we've already talked about it a couple of times this year, and it's because that these attacks and the persecution of Christians seems to be on the rise around the world and definitely escalating. As you noted this past Sunday, on Easter Sunday, there was an attack by a terrorist group uh, on three churches and a number of high-end hotels that marks a devastating escalation of violence against a Christian minority in that country, and they have been targeted in the past, but never to this level. Some have suggested that ISIS was behind this, and certainly ISIS has claimed credit for it, and even the uh, Sri Lankan president has issued an order for every house in Sri Lanka to be searched for terrorists. That's that's an amazing undertaking. Uh, They're looking for 140 people with ties to this particular extremist groups. And even the Archbishop of Colombo, which is the capital of Sri Lanka, has said that Sunday Mass has been canceled until further notice because of these devastating attacks. You know, David, as far as I know, Sri Lanka has not been a hotbed of Islamic extremism. So how and why did this attack happen in the first place, seemingly coming out of nowhere? Well, you're right about that. You know, Sri Lanka is not something that is in the news on a daily basis and something that has normally been off the radar screen, and there have been several people who have put forward different theories concerning why this may have happened. Uh, And in fact, less than 8% of Sri Lanka's population of 21 million are Christian, and many of those are Roman Catholic. Hindus uh, make up about 12% of the country, and and Muslims uh, around 10%, but the majority are Buddhist. So we wouldn't expect this to happen. One thing I can think is that 
perhaps it, it, Sri Lanka, because of this particular uh, demographic situation, is seen as a soft target, and Christians and other groups would not necessarily be on their guard, and definitely they were not on their guard. One interesting story that I saw was that the Sunday school teacher for one of the churches that was hit asked his children in his Sunday school class if they were ready to die for Christ Mm. just before they went into the main service, Mm. and many of them lost their lives. So it's a a tragedy and one that we wouldn't expect, but I would also suggest that it's uh, something that we may see in the future in other places where these churches and, and ministries are seen as soft targets because they are not on a high level alertness to the possibility that these things might happen. You know, one thing I've noticed, and something that's been discussed pretty widely in the conservative media, is that both former President Obama and Hillary Clinton have tweeted that the attacks were against Easter worshipers, rather than simply identifying them as Christians. That's exactly right. You know, my first response to that was that they were just using shorthand to say, or they were simply saying that these were Christians who were worshiping on Easter, and thus the shorthand for Easter worshipers. But I think, as I've looked at this more closely, I think there may be something to this criticism that we've been hearing in the conservative media, as you pointed out, that, in fact, this was intentional. If you go back Back to the tweets, and, and I have copies of them up in front of me right now. At around 10 o'clock Eastern Standard Time on Easter Sunday, former President Obama wrote that on a day devoted to love, redemption, and renewal, we pray for the victims and stand with the people of Sri Lanka, and said that these attacks on tourists and Easter worshipers are attacks on humanity. And then about three and a half hours Later on the same day, Hillary Clinton also tweeted, On this holy weekend for many faiths, we must stand united against hatred and violence. I'm praying for everyone affected by today's horrific attacks on Easter worshipers and travelers in Sri Lanka. You know, we have to understand that President Obama and Hillary Clinton probably didn't write these themselves, although they may have called upon their staff to write them. For one thing, both of them actually misspelled worshipers with two Ps, which is not a normal spelling for that mm. word, which points to the fact that they are both relying on the similar sources, or they're relying upon each other, and this thing just gets multiplied. But more importantly, why don't they just call them Christians? When they responded to the attacks on Muslims in New Zealand, on, in Christchurch in New Zealand, they referred to Muslims and uh, to the fact that these were places of Muslim worship, and And for whatever reason, they are choosing not to identify Christians as the subject of Islamic attacks. So this is very troubling, and I think it's characteristic of what we're seeing around the world as this war against Christians escalates around the world. Very interesting thoughts there, David. I've thought that myself. I'm glad you vocalized it for us. Well, a couple of days ago, the Times of Israel reported that Israel has issued a travel warning to Jews saying that there remains a high and concrete chance of other terror attacks in Sri Lanka. 
That's right. You know, we have an enemy in the world, the father of lies, an enemy of our souls, and he is also the enemy of both Christians and the nation of Israel, because Israel is God's chosen people, going clear back to the Abrahamic covenant with which God made promises to Abraham, and then later through Isaac and Jacob to the people, the children of Israel, the children of Jacob, God made promises to them that they would be his people eternally. And so it's not a surprise, I don't think, that we would see that the attacks by our enemy, that he is using third parties, whether it be Islam or Hindu extremists or whoever they might be throughout the world, to attack God's people in this generation, which would be believers in Jesus Christ, and then the nation that would be God's chosen people throughout all of eternity, and that is the Jewish people. And so I think it's important for us to understand that Sri Lanka is is recognizing this as well as a nation, that we are in a geopolitical conflict that has satanic roots at its very core. David, let me give our listeners a little bit of inside baseball. In other words, what we do in preparations. This conversation is just not off the cuff. We spend time in research, especially you. And as a part of our prep for today's discussion, you sent me an article that highlights some of the major attacks against Christians over the last couple of years. And there have been many, in fact, just this year alone. You're exactly right. The article that I sent you was on the uh, the religionofpeace.com website, and I think it's important for us to stay on top of these things. They point out a number of attacks that have occurred, as you said, from the beginning of this year. They have been in Sri Lanka just this past weekend. Last week, there were 17 people killed in Nigeria. There were attacks in March in Nigeria. Uh, there were attacks in Burkina Faso in Africa, again in Nigeria earlier in March. The majority of the attacks that we find are in Africa. There was in January going back to the uh, going to the Philippines. There were 27 people killed and 111 people injured. Also in January there were attacks in Germany. There were attacks in Egypt. So this is happening around the world, and we need to bring people's attention to these issues. As we wrap it up here, David, I want to deal with a question that you and I as Bible teachers are often confronted with, and that's the fact that we hold to a pre-trib rapture. In other words, before the tribulation period, the rapture will take place. We, some say, are just escapists who think that Christians in America are somehow going to be delivered from severe persecution because of the rapture of the church. Speak to that issue. You're right. I hear that quite frequently as well, and some people think that that is a strong argument against uh, the pre-trib rapture view. But I would say this. We are not escapists. I think we are realists. We do believe that we will be preserved from the persecution and the judgments that are going to fall upon the earth during Daniel's 70th week. But those are the judgments of God. We are promised to be preserved from the wrath of God. We are not promised to be preserved from the wrath of Satan and the wrath of men and the natural consequences of mankind being deep in sin. So to be honest with you, I think that Christians in America may very well face severe persecution, and perhaps on the order of what we see happening around the world, 
prior to the rapture of the Church, we are promised to be preserved from God's wrath, and that is certainly our blessed hope. But things could get much worse, and I think believers in the United States need to be prepared for what is happening, and is certainly moving in that direction around the world, and we see elements of it beginning in our country as well. And that preparation is coming to know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. That's 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 to 5, which is the power of God unto salvation, Romans chapter 1, for all of us who want to be prepared to live eternity with our Lord and Savior. And indeed, we will not go through that tribulation period, but be with the Savior, Jesus Christ, in the heavenlies. Hey, great conversation. I'm glad we had it. It was important. It's a horrific event that happened there in Sri Lanka. We needed to discuss it. Travels mercies as you go up to Canada. Have a great ministry up there. You'll be in Canada next week when we talk. Thanks, Jimmy. I'll look forward to our connection when I'm in Canada. We're going to take a break. When we come back, I'm going to take the Bible, open it up, and compare what God's prophetic word says with all the broadcast partners' reports that we've had today here on Prophecy Today. That's all ahead right here on Prophecy Today. Just how close are we to the rapture of the church? Do events taking place in the Middle East and around the world have prophetic significance? In his latest book, Sound the Trumpets, Jimmy DeYoung examines these questions and explains just how near the rapture of the church could possibly be. By comparing four trends from prophetic scripture to current events taking place in the world today, Jimmy shows that the stage is set. Every actor is in place, and the curtain is about to go up on the end-time scenario set forth in the scriptures. Sound the Trumpets is a must-read for every serious student of Bible prophecy. To order your copy of Jimmy DeYoung's new book, Sound the Trumpets, for only $15, call us today at 8-PROPHECY-8. That's 877-674-3298. Or visit us on the World Wide Web at prophecytoday.com. Call today and make sure to get your copy of Sound the Trumpets. Hey everyone, this is Dave James with the Alliance for Biblical Integrity. You hear me each week discussing current theological issues with Jimmy DeYoung on the Prophecy Today weekend broadcast. We founded the Alliance for Biblical Integrity because we saw a need for an apologetics and discernment ministry that would be an important resource for local churches, schools, and ministry organizations that face ever-changing theological challenges in today's world. I teach many different courses and seminars in the United States and around the world and can tailor the seminars for Sunday schools, Bible studies, and church services, and the courses for weekend conferences of 6 to 10 hours. For more information, you can go to the ABI website at biblicalintegrity.org. That's one word, biblicalintegrity.org, and click on Courses and Seminars on the main menu. You can also contact me personally through the contact page on the ABI website. I look forward to hearing from you. It's time right now here on Prophecy Today for us to take a look at the book. Our broadcast partners have come to my broadcast table with reports on current events happening around the world. Now, we do this on a weekly basis to keep all of us informed on how these events are setting the stage for Bible prophecy to be fulfilled. 
For example, today we heard from Ken Timmerman. He covers geopolitical activities for us, and Ken talked about Lebanon's Minister of Defense warning of an attack on Ben-Gurion Airport in Israel. Well, the Bible interestingly says in Psalm 83, Ezekiel chapter 38, and Daniel chapter 11, that there will be an alignment of nations that will come against the Jewish state of Israel. In Psalm 83 and verse 7, it talks about Tyre, Tyre and Sidon, Lebanon today. And this nation will be a part of the prophetic scenario laid out by God's word of this alignment of nations to try to wipe Israel off the face of the earth. Remember Hezbollah located and headquartered there in the southern end of Lebanon at Israel's northern border is a surrogate terrorist organization for Iran. And so we see these players coming together, especially when you hear a Lebanese minister of defense warning about an attack on Ben-Gurion Airport in Israel. David Dolan gave us a Middle East news update and was very exciting to me because it talked about tens of thousands of Jewish people, Jewish worshipers who had gathered in Jerusalem for the Passover season, and they went to the Western Wall in Jerusalem to receive the priestly blessings. These men who have qualified and have been studying for a number of years the priestly responsibilities that they will be a part of in administering the Temple on the Temple Mount, which the Orthodox Jewish community is very eager to build today. They came and blessed just tens of thousands of worshipers, many Christians joining in there at the Western Wall for that blessing as well. As I said, all preparation for the temple, these men who are priests training and now starting to exercise some of the duties they will be involved in. Remember, that temple does not come into existence until after the rapture and actually after the alignment of nations when Satan himself energizes a man, a human being here on the earth, the Antichrist, and according to Daniel chapter 11, verse 45, tells the Jews, after the destruction of all the nations trying to wipe Israel off the face of the earth, he will tell the Jews, build your temple. But every preparation has been made for that temple to go up. It's set to happen in the tribulation period. Winky Madad is a good friend of ours and a broadcast partner. He's an Orthodox Jewish man, and I called Winky to talk about Holocaust Remembrance Day. There's an International Holocaust Remembrance Day that is sponsored by the United Nations, and that would be bringing into memory those people, both Jews and others, who were killed during World War II and the Holocaust. But the Holocaust Remembrance Day in Israel is focused on the Jewish people that were killed during that horrific attack during the time of the Second World War by Hitler and his Nazi group. This Remembrance Day in Israel has a very important purpose. That's to cause the Jews to remember that day and say, never again. That's not going to be the case. It will happen again. The Bible tells us in Zechariah chapter 13 and verse 8 
there will be a time when two out of three Jews will be killed, and that's the tribulation period. By the way, that other third will come to know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Well, John Rood is the man who's lived there in Brussels, Belgium, for over 30 years. He knows the European Union. We talked to him, and I read an article this week I asked John about, and that was from a political pundit who wrote, Get ready for the end of the European Union. Well, of course, he's talking from a political perspective that the European Union may have seen its best days headed towards the end. However, You've got to remember that there will be a group of nations coming together to form an economic, political, governmental system that will be the foundation and the infrastructure for the revived Roman Empire. That's Daniel chapter 7, verses 7 and 8, and then couple that with verses 23 and 24. John's reports always key to our understanding how the political is setting the stage for the prophetic to be fulfilled. Colonel Bob McGinnis from the Pentagon had a conversation with me today. We talked about the Cold War between the United States and Russia and China. Now, this week, a number of things have been happening. The Russian leader meeting with the North Korean leader there in Russia and China moving into Syria, working alongside Iran. Remember, when you study the scriptures in the first six months of the tribulation period, Russians a key player as they lead that alignment of nations. In the last six months, according to Revelation chapter 16 and verse 12, the kings of the East China plays a key role in the end of the tribulation period. That's why we bring Bob McGinnis a China watcher, and a Russia watcher as well to give us reports on these activities. And then David James and I had a conversation about the slaughter of the Christian community in Sri Lanka. This is only the tip of the iceberg as it relates to persecution against Christians around the world. David and I have committed to keep you posted on how this is happening in anticipation for the tribulation period. Now, Christians at the rapture leave this world. The persecution will be on believers, Jewish and Gentile believers, during the tribulation period. What David and I talked about, a foretaste of that to come. You know, you hear these reports here at prophecytoday.com. If you'd like to go back and listen to them once again, you go to my website, prophecytoday.com, PTRN, Prophecy Today Radio Network. Tell a friend about these reports. And today, as we rehearsed these reports, I gave you a prophetic perspective. This is key to see how God's plan for the future is unfolding which is absolute evidence that the next event on God's prophetic calendar is the rapture of the church, which could happen at any moment. Having said that, nothing left for me to say, except let's keep looking up until... Thank you so much for joining us today. This is Jay Johnson inviting you to join us again next week for more of Prophecy Today. 